The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. Hello and welcome to The Verso Podcast. My name is Eleanor Penny. Our regular show is on break right now, but in the meantime, I am delighted to bring you some bonus content. The 2010s saw an unprecedented explosion of political mobilisation. Across the globe, more people participated in mass protests than at any other time in human history. At the same time, campaigns supporting left-leaning politicians in Western Europe and the United States amassed tremendous followings. And yet, despite the popularity of these various movements, it seems like little material progress has been made. In this episode, authors Anton Jaeger and Vincent Bevins reflect on the previous decade, the mass political movements that took place, and the ultimate failure of these movements to produce meaningful political change. They consider the lessons that can be taken from the 2010s and discuss what will be required of current and future movements in order to achieve a more just and democratic world. Anton Jaeger is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Catholic University of Leuven, His writing on populism, basic income, and the contemporary crisis of democracy has appeared in Jacobin, The Guardian, and The New Statesman. His latest book, titled The Populist Moment, The Left After the Great Recession, written alongside co-author Arthur Borrelio, is available now from Verso Books. It covers the populist turn in the leftist political movements of the previous decade. Vincent Bevins is an award-winning journalist, correspondent, and author. His latest book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution is available now from Public Affairs. The book reconstructs the uprisings that defined the 2010s, arguing that conventional wisdom on revolutionary change is gravely misguided and offering urgent lessons for the future. Hi, my name is Anthony Corum with the Verso Podcast. I'm joined here today by Anton Yeager co-author of The Populist Moment, written alongside Artur Borriello, published by Verso as part of the Jacobin series, and Vincent Bevins, author of If We Burn, published by Public Affairs. I'll let you both introduce yourselves and elaborate on your books. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Anton Jaeger. I'm a lecturer in politics at Oxford University, and I wrote a book for Verso called The Populist Moment, The Left After the Great Recession, which was co-authored with Artur Borriello, who is in Brussels. So the book is an investigation, but also an evaluation, or at least a test of a series of populist movements that arose in the last 10 and 15 years in Europe, uh, in Spain, in France, in Greece, in Britain, but also in the United States, so the North Atlantic more generally. Uh, We examine where they came from, uh, how they were related to the great financial crisis that broke out in 2008, how that crisis moved from the United States to Europe, how it was first a private debt crisis and then became a public debt crisis, Um, in what environment those populist movements had to operate. So party systems that had been hollowed out, uh, in which parties lost members and steadily began to fuse with the state, and how that created a space in which not necessarily a socialist or a Marxist left, but a specifically populist left, uh, came to rise in Europe and the United States in the 2010s. And finally, we end the book on an examination, as we said, an evaluation of what the strengths and the weaknesses of these movements are, so what they accomplished and what they didn't accomplish, and then asking ourselves the question where they're headed in the future, if they're headed anywhere at all. 
Uh, so in general, it might read as a pretty pessimistic book. We think that left populism definitely hasn't worked. But at the same time, we do want to insist that it asks some incredibly important questions, and that those are questions that will still remain for, with us for the coming decade as well. So my name is Vincent Bevins. I'm a journalist from the United States, and I'm the author of If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. So at the risk of uh, appearing uh, overly ambitious, this book seeks to tell the story of the world from 2010 to 2020. But like any works of history, it selects themes. It is built around particular concerns. And this is a work of history built around one quite vexing and often tragic uh, question. How is it that so many mass protest movements led to the opposite of what they apparently asked for. So this decade from 2010 to 2020 is the uh, historical moment in which more people participated in demonstrations than at any other point in human history. But often this did not work out as planned. This often uh, led to uh, tragic and horrible results for the original organizers and for the regular people that joined the street movements. So uh, over four years, I carried out over something like 250 interviews in 12 countries so that I could reconstruct the history of this decade. So the book is structured primarily as a work of narrative history, uh, um, uh, presenting in chronological order what actually happened starting in Tunisia and then ending at the end of the decade in Chile and Hong Kong. But then at the end of the book, these people that sat down with me very graciously to recount this very difficult period in their own uh, lives, try to present, present to me and to the reader a set of lessons, the kinds of things that they would tell the next generation. What would you, uh, what would you tell younger people, I would ask them, that might be living through a, an uprising or an attempt to change their own societies in the near future? So the entire idea behind their participation in the book and, and indeed behind my decision to write it was an attempt to learn from the ways in which we may have picked tactics which were a slight mismatch for the goals of the mass protest decade and to find a way to build a better future together going forward. These books grapple with the resurgent left of the 2010s that attempted to build itself after 20 years of retreat, following the end of history at the beginning of the 90s. As you wrote in your book, Vincent, by 2010, after street battles from Chile to Hong Kong, the world had experienced more mass protests in the previous decade than at any other point in human history, exceeding the famous global cycle of contention in the 60s. Why did the 2010s see such a political explosion? So I think to explain why a, any given street explosion or a set of street explosions um, crosses a threshold to become either, as you say, the, the biggest uh, in human history or to get large enough to really destabilize or threaten to overthrow uh, a government, which is what the, the, the types of street explosions that I look, like, look at in my book, you need to have several explanations, of course. I think social media probably pushes us over the line uh, in, a, in an important way. It provides one of the final um, necessary causes for making these explosions so big, but that doesn't mean that they're about social media. Um, as Anton's book points to, I think that the consequences of the 2008 financial crisis uh, have a big, uh, 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 are, go a long way to expo uh, explaining what this is about. I think the crisis of representation, which is a big part of Anton's book as well, uh, go a long way, goes a long way to explaining what this is about. And the, indeed, uh, another thing that is at the heart of, I think, Anton's book, he can agree or disagree, um, decades of atomization, individualization, um, and the decay of traditional organizations uh, 
made this particular type of response to injustice, perceived injustice and inequality, the one that seen, that became hegemonic or indeed became natural. So in the 2010s, we not only had many, many reasons to be upset with the given order, we had a global system which was uh, creating uh, worse and worse inequality in which uh, the elites which were supposed to represent the citizenry were demonstrably not doing so. Um, we, we also did not have a lot of other ways at our disposal, or at least uh, we were ideologically incapable of thinking uh, other ways of responding than getting as many people to the streets as soon as possible. Um, so uh, as with any, any, any world historical explosion, there's a lot of explanations, but I think those are some of the first ones. Yes, I think I'm a little to add to that story. So the combo Vincent talked about between social media plus the fallout of 2008, the long-term crisis of representation, which afflicts both traditional older party democracies in Europe, but that's obviously also a global story. Um, but I think the main uh, relationship we see is between a debt crisis, a global debt crisis that manifests itself either on the level of individuals who are severely indebted or either on the level of states who would take on public debt and then have to implement austerity programs, combined with the fact there's a specific mode of mobilization or protest that became very dominant in the 2010s, which is indeed street mobilization, which is very energetic, um, uh, very powerful, but doesn't necessarily have a strong institutional component. And so what our book tries to add is that it looks at a series of experiments, mainly in Europe, where that initial moment of protest has to translate itself into a moment of politics. But we see that the task of institutionalization, which is posed there, is actually much trickier than many people presuppose. So, of course, our story is about Europe, but as Vincent intimated, the fallout of 2008 goes far beyond the debt crisis you see in an individual or on in a state level in Europe. So there's example, for example, that the freezing, or there's evidence, sorry, that the freezing of capital markets at the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, actually has a pretty direct effect on the lending capacity of a lot of uh, Northern African states who rely very heavily on control prices, for example, on, on foodstuffs. If they find it more difficult to lend because international markets are frozen, that obviously pushes some of these prices up. And that's what we see with the beginning of the Arab Spring, where it is exactly so-called price riots or the fact that certain foodstuffs become more expensive, which actually pushes these regimes to the brink. Now, we never saw as dramatic a version of that in Europe, but I think once again, we live in a properly global world at the end of the 2000s and the beginning of the 2010s. And that means there is a sort of direct um, link between all the protest movements we're talking about. By 2010, the left had seen 40 years of progressive hollowing out of collective institutions that they've traditionally relied on in the past, like unions and mass political parties. Given the lack of these institutions, how did the left in the 2010s attempt to compensate? Yes, um, that is indeed the topic, <laughs> the central question of the book. Um, so some of these traditional institutions did enter a very deep decline. It's not just that they enter a quantitative decline, that they lose members, that they become less powerful, they also become less attractive as models. So most of these protest movements we're talking in the 2010s, their natural reflex is not necessarily to build a party or to start a union, to build one of these classical institutions, but actually to go towards a repertoire of action that is, as Vincent shows, more focused on the street, that's more about direct confrontation on the street level rather than the sort of deep institutional building we were accustomed to. 
Um, but what you see clearly in the European case is that there is a limited lifespan to these protest cycles. Um, there is a limited amount of energy that can be expended on them. And of course, many of the austerity programs they're protesting against continue unabated nonetheless. So there is a very well-organized uh, group of bureaucrats or uh, sort of agents of capital that are very institutionalized. And then there's a protest movement which does scare people, which does collective bargaining by riot, as Eric Hobsbawm says it, but it can't really extract any sort of long-term concessions from the ruling bloc. And that's the moment really where they try to transition into a different mode of protest, which is all about finding institutions which don't necessarily resemble those older institutions, but which can have some uh, political heft over the holders of power within society. And there we talk about the transition from those protest movements to so-called digital or populist parties. Um, there are several elements of those parties uh, we can talk about. The first is, of course, they do participate in elections. So they do see themselves as participants in a certain game that to some of the Indignados or the previous protest movements might not have seemed legitimate. The second is they're digital parties, so they're not necessarily parties that work with the classical membership model we knew from the 20th century. That means people have lower entry and exit costs in how they relate to these parties. These parties are mainly organized online and they rely on the network effects that come with the line. And I would say they're also quite top-heavy. Um, so, of course, this depends on the political system you're entering, but they're top-heavy in the sense that they do rely very heavily on leaders. So, Paolo Gerbauda has used the notion of hyper-leaders, where you need some kind of digital leader or figure to actually unite the group of individuals that wants to institutionalize itself into this party. Um, and that has benefits insofar as you clearly find a unifying figure. And it was also the idea between much of the left populist theory that supported some of these movements, but it also makes you really vulnerable in that you're dependent on the qualities and the whims of one specific individual that is meant to guide you through uh, this social struggle. You saw this clearly with the fact that Corbynism was called Corbynism. It's not necessarily named after an ideology. Um, you also see this with Benelchon in France. Um, these are movements that really build themselves around the thought and the actions of a specific individual rather than emanating from an older political tradition that is ideologically independent. So far as you could start with a new socialist party, you could start a new communist party, but many of these protest movements that wanted to create institutions didn't actually start from that ideological basis. So I'd say that is a specificity of the phase we discuss in the book. Yeah, and what I would add there is that, certainly in my case, but I think probably globally, it's not just the left that saw a disintegration of its organizations over the last 40 years. It was really sort of every type of organization, except, except of course, uh, the financial firms that became so powerful in the neoliberal era. Um, and just to be clear, my, my book, I mean, unlike um, Anton's book, I don't look really at uh, the North Atlantic or elections at all, um, which is why it's so interesting that there's so much overlap um, with his book, even though I only really look at uh, the only explosions that I ended up looking at very closely because they're the ones that end up becoming so successful, often accidentally successful, are in the global south. And um, in those 10 cases in which I decide, I mean, I make up the criterion myself, that uh, these uh, street explosions became big enough to disrupt their respective systems or to indeed provide the opportunity for creating an entirely new one. The few cases that do not end in absolute disaster, the few cases that do not actually lead to a situation which is the precise opposite of what the street movements have asked for, 
are the cases in which there are some remnants of organizations that are able to play an important role in getting things over the line. So in Tunisia, you have a, a, a large union which is still relatively autonomous from the dictatorship, and there are uh, radical leftists in, in the UGTT. Uh, there is a Marxist-Leninist party, which is very important. It's starting the getting the protests to the capital. In South Korea, um, there, the uh, unions play quite an important role in, in the candlelight revolution. And then finally in Chile, it is ironically, even though the Estado Social is a an apparently spontaneous, apparently uh, leaderless uh, horizontal street explosion, this, this group of people does have some kind of representation that has spent a decade um, finding a way to exist within Chilean institutional structures. So the question of the decline of organization, and as uh, Anton and Arthur point out at the end of their book, uh, not, it's not the complete dis disintegration of these structures. They're, they still exist uh, in, in some ways, uh, which, is, which bedeviled uh, often uh, populist movements in Europe. But it was precisely where the remnants of these organizations were able to play a role that I did not find disaster in my look at the what I call the mass protest uh, decade. Social media played a huge role in the political movements of the 2010s. Can you both elaborate on the role of social media in building, shaping, and interpreting these movements? Okay, I'll start. Um, once again, I'm going to confine myself to the North Atlantic and not to the global case, even though there are extrapolations and um, conclusions that probably hold on a global level. Um, I'd say that the internet, of course, has been around for a while, even when this protest wave comes along. So it's not as if it's a completely new factor in it. But it does play a distinctly um, new role in that the social internet, or what we now call social media, is really something that begins to blossom as the global financial crisis actually um, takes off around 2007, 2008. So there's an interesting synchronicity in that it's only when social media comes into its own that the protest wave can uh, can actually take off. Um, I'd say that the most important role for social media is that they provide an alternative for many types of traditional and classical media, which many of these activists or protesters see as monopolized or actually overly dominated by some of the forces of the old order that are blocking um, the reforms or some of the breakthroughs and changes they're actually demanding. So the initial promise of social media is indeed that it has a horizontal, very open, I would say participatory element, which was already implicit in the 2000s, but it only becomes very explicit in the 2010s. Now, for example, in the Egyptian case, people have often said that there was a sort of liberal romance with the Facebook revolutions that supposedly people gathered on the squares purely because they interacted on Facebook, while when you see the groups that actually organize some of those first meetings do have a labor component as well. And I think that also holds for the European case where with Corbynism or even with Mélenchon, and I'd even say for Bernie and then also with Syriza, there are remnants of older radical left structures that decide to reinvent themselves as these populist vehicles um, that don't exclusively rely on social media mobilization. So I wouldn't say that left populism was purely a Facebook phenomenon as some liberal interpretations of those Northern African revolutions tend to do. At the same time, I do think they played a very important role in that they allowed these movements to sidestep some of the clogged channels of communication that were there on the other level. Um, so it meant that you can maintain your own parallel media sphere, you could create your own uh, ecosystem with podcasts and um, 
means of communication, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which doesn't, for example, force you to write tribunes in some of the more bourgeois newspapers or on those more traditional hierarchical media uh, we knew from the previous age. Um, so that is the promise, and I think it's a very real promise. And so far as if you look at momentum in the British case, um, most of that interaction also happened online. There were these online consultation mechanisms we saw with Podemos in Spain that proved quite important. But once again, they were also bedeviled by an eternal problem you saw in the protest decade, namely that there's a certain impermanence to social media, which makes political organization online very difficult. So leaving a Facebook group is not the same as having to leave a union or shedding or handing out your membership card for a political party. You can opt in and opt out very easily online. And that optional aspect also makes it very difficult for you to build a coalition that is loyal and durable um, to your cause. And I think you clearly saw this in the British case where you can generate quite a lot of digital buzz. You can have the sense that you're growing a base and then you have an election in which you renege on some of your previous promises around Brexit. And then it turns out there's a whole shadow electorate um, that doesn't seem to be tuned in or that isn't with you online. And that is the, the very tricky part of the story. Yeah, um, absolutely. And what I would add, because, and I think my answer will be, be quite different because again, I look at mass protest explosions, so it's a very specific dynamic. Um, so the first point that I would make about social media in the 2010s is that we didn't get social media full stop. We didn't get social media in the abstract, right? We got a particular type of social media which took shape as a result of it being created by capitalist firms driven by advertising revenue based in California. And there's a lot of different ways that we could imagine social media having taken shape. And the promise of social media, the idea that social media would, would be necessarily liberatory, that it would be necessarily uh, lead to more transparency and democracy uh, turned out to be absolutely incorrect. But that's not because we were wrong about the possibilities of the internet, right? It's because uh, oligarchs shaped social media for their own purposes. And this had profoundly distorting effects, not only I think on uh, political action, indeed the concrete uh, material structure of street movements and I like our deep psychological makeup. I think this has been, uh, this is, social media took a direction that did not, did it not, did it did not have to. And I think it's important to separate the very particular type of firms that we got from the promise of the internet in general. Now, in the case of the uprisings that I look at starting in Tunisia and then going to Egypt and then across the, the decade ending in, in Chile and Hong Kong, what this particular type of social media firm does, and this has positive and negative effects, we can, we can, you know, you can decide how you feel about this, is that it will, it is a great technology for selecting the types of images, the types of posts that will cause some kind of immediate effective response in the social media user, right? And so what, what I found uh, in, I think, seven out of 10 of the cases uh, that I looked at, this, these mass protect explosions, it is an image, it is a viral image of police brutality against a citizen, often like a white uh, a privileged subject, somebody that is not supposed to be repressed, that causes the initial spark. So every state, as far as I can think of, every, every uh, capitalist state, every non-capitalist state, uh, relies upon, in the final instance, a cop beating somebody up. But before the era of social media, it was very unlikely that the average person was going to get the image of the most disturbing example of that delivered to their face uh, uh, out of nowhere. And then um, 
allow for them to mobilize or to react based on, on that image. So in the case of the North African uprising, is absolutely uh, crisis, unemployment, uh, uh, the long effects of neoliberalism are incredibly important to, to explaining that story. But it, the, the way that Egypt came together uh, in its particular uh, origins was that January 5th, 20, 2011 was, a, was an organized, was a protest organized on police day uh, against police brutality. At the very beginning of this uh, protest movement, they were not calling for the end of the Mubarak regime. Um, and they had decided to center police abuse as so many others, so many other street movements did uh, throughout the decade. Um, and so placing a, placing a focus on police violence um, is something that I think was in some ways very necessary. I think there's many ways in which my society, especially the United States and many, many others have not confronted uh, or resolved the, the deep problems of police brutality. But it also made that central in a ways, in ways which I think um, really became fundamental to the ways that these movements uh, organized in the long term. And then finally, and I don't want to talk about this just because my particular class, this is the perspective that, that I know the most about. I think some social media um, prof profoundly distorted the incentive structures for people like me. So the particular type of mass protest, the particular type of political contention that became hegemonic in the 2010s, I, believes, I believe relies to probably to an excessive extent, and, and many of the people who organized these mass protests came to the same conclusion, when you are so apparently structuralist, so apparently leaderless, so horizontal, um, you end up relying upon somebody from the outside to impose meaning upon the, the protest movement. You know, uh, uh, you know, the, the movement cannot be cannot represent itself; it must be represented. The, the movement cannot speak for itself; someone will speak for it. Uh, as I end up uh, trying to rephrase uh, uh, the marks in my book, and so people like me. Uh, and this is entirely ridiculous and un unfair and, and a, a, a consequence of deep structural problems in the global production of knowledge and journalism in general, were called upon to explain to the world what, this, what was happening. And this explanation, as I show in the book, often actually reconstructed or reformulated what was happening materially on the street. Um, and social media profoundly distorted this, the incentives of people like me because people like me started to learn what kinds of things, and we would we'd start to understand at a deep psychological level, we, even if we didn't admit it to ourselves, we knew deep down what kind of explanations were going to get us more clicks or more retweets or more likes. And so people like me gravitated, gravitated toward those explanations in a way which I think as like, you know, it, it, as, as silly of a dynamic as it seems, I think uh, ended up restructuring the actual street movements in ways which were quite consequential. Can I, can I just add that Vincent made an incredibly important point about the shared future to many of these movements that also unites the U.S. case, some of the Latin American, African, Asian, and then European cases, is that um, given the weakening of the organizations that classically represented the capital labor opposition in society, so whether it's unions or certain communist parties, it's very striking that many of these movements were not necessarily pitted against a social opponent, but very much opposed to the repressive wing of the state. 
Because what debt does on an individual, and I think even on a collective level, is that it atomizes. It's also Marx's point about the peasants, where the quote you said about they can't be represented. But what's striking about Marx's peasants is that they have debt, so they're isolated from each other. They don't necessarily have an association or community. And then the only way that you can find a common opponent is that when you go to protest, the first sign of the state that you see is indeed the police baton. And then you have the additional factor of social media where breaches of the social contract, which used to be momentary and scattered before, can now instantly be shared across platforms. And that means that virally everyone sees that police are beating up someone somewhere. And this means once again that a striking feature of these protest movements, the repressive wing of the state is the first representative of the ruling order that's targeted. And it goes hand in hand with the fact that now everyone can see it, while before that might have been an isolated incident that maybe the regular press wouldn't even report it, have reported on before. Absolutely. Were these movements interacting and learning from each other? Was the movement in Greece, for example, learning from the movement in Egypt? Um, I'll start because um, I have a smaller range of cases to discuss. Clearly there was interaction. And so there were common sources of inspiration. So we do talk about how Leclerc and Mouffe as left populist theory seemed to offer a shared source of inspiration to some of these movements. Um, I don't want to overstate the influence of theory there because people tend to self-congratulate themselves there. But clearly the fact that these were two theorists who for 30 years were already pushing the left to trade and supposedly antiquated language of class and the working class for something like the people. In the case of Mélenchon in France, it was very clear that it worked. Um, he shed the old name of his party, the Front de Gauche. So he got rid of any reference to the left. He explicitly started speaking in the name of the, the peuple or the people and electorally um, that gave him a massive boost. Then once you saw that one person tested this left populist hypothesis, they say other figures, whether in uh, Germany, but also in England and certainly also in Spain, also began um, to test the same. Um, at the same time, I do think there is a striking development in European politics, and you've mainly had this discussion in Spain, which they call the Latin Americanization of the European left, um, because most of the initial references of Podemos were indeed Latin American. Um, and it's also because Latin American political systems, which are usually more volatile, with parties that are less deeply rooted, more presidential, uh, far more prone to very sudden jerks in uh, political coalitions, Europe was approaching a situation like that, given the disorganization of its political systems, which made it look Latin American. So if your own continent is Latin Americanizing, it's very obvious that you'd look to Latin America for inspiration as to how you're supposed to conduct left-wing politics as such. Um, and of course, um, there was this moment, I think, after Syriza's surrender in 2015, when Podemos uh, leader Iglesias at the time was asked, uh, what do you think actually of the fact that they've now sold out to the creditors, that they're now implementing a memorandum that's even harsher than the one they had before? And Pablo Iglesias said, I think it's uh, the Stalin quote, like how many divisions does the Pope have? Um, so what are we to expect from a party that uh, can't just fight the Eurozone and the German power bloc on its own? So I think, yes, there was very intense interaction um, also in more uncomfortable ways in that there was a scandal in France when Mélenchon met with Corbyn and wanted to talk about a pan-European strategy. And this was just the moment as the so-called anti-Semitism scandal was erupting. And then 
French right-wing opinion makers were all over Mélenchon for the fact that he was associated with an anti-Semite uh, abroad. So that is the more, yeah, I'd say unfortunate or um, a very, yeah, the handicap which some of these left populist forces in Europe had in common. So you could share the same theory, you could read the same sources, but at the same time, once you're associated with each other, you also have to pretend as if you're somehow connected and representative of the other forces. Yes, and and absolutely, uh, there is a, a wide range of cases in my book, and this this particular dynamic um, is important across all of them. This particular dynamic, that of copying and pasting what was apparently successful elsewhere, but that was developed in entirely different political and economic national circumstances, and and trying to apply it to your own local problems, is one that is run that runs through my entire. Uh, work because it runs through the entire decade um and at the risk you know instead of trying to go through each case because this is this is uh, such an important and wide-ranging phenomenon what i will say is that i do think social media has something to do with this i think that the internet not not just social media but media traditional and social has something to do with this and what i will say quite strikingly and often tragically is that not only did you get the copying and pasting of tactics that were developed in entirely different circumstances you got the continued copying and pasting of tactics after they were dem they demonstrably did not even work in the place in which they were developed. So Tunisia inspires Egypt. Uh, Egypt, Tahrir Square, provides the world with an inspiring prefigurative carnal, carnival of revo revolution in the center of, uh, uh, of Cairo. Uh, Tahrir Square uh, inspires Occupy Wall Street. And this is, a, you know, this is, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I think Occupy Wall Street ironically ends up working out and actually um, being a good thing in the long run for the United States, precisely because it does not become an actual mass protest movement, precisely because it does not actually shut down uh, Manhattan. But then you get the umbrella movement in 2014 in Hong Kong, copying Occupy Wall Street, which is a copy of Egypt, which is a copy of Tunisia. And this is after Tahrir Square has demonstrably not worked. This is after there's already been the CC coup and the Egyptian style of, of revolutionary practice has ended an absolute disaster. And so this is something that um, I think it is important, you know, a, a fundamental uh, assumption of the book, a fundamental uh, uh, claim of the book, it is, it is that it is possible to, do, to be upset about the right thing, to want to respond to it, but to respond in the wrong way. And so ideally, the, ideally, we learn from the mismatch between tactics and goals that, you know, that, that we saw in the 2010s. And we can, you know, it's not a big adjustment to uh, creating better sets of uh, political resp responses to political injustice in the future. But this copying and pasting was something that was so common as to be absurd uh, in, in the decade that I looked at. Anton, can you explain the difference between the populist approach and a more socialistic approach? Was the populist approach taken by these movements flawed? Yes. Um, I'll first just give a discussion in terms of content. So what does it mean first in terms of your ideology, what you actually believe society looks like and how it should change. Then in terms of messaging, almost communication. Then finally, I want to talk about the factors that make it so plausible and attractive. Because there's a very common response to that populist turn the left and the last 10 years or last 15 years that's quite allergic and that says that it's a selling out, that it's a betrayal of central Marxist principles and that it doesn't actually belong on the left. Um, and I'm sympathetic to parts of that critique insofar as there are severe limits to the left populist hypothesis 
which we also discuss in the book. But that critique doesn't actually tell us why it become attractive and so powerfully plausible in the last 10 years. So why is it that Mélenchon decides to switch so heavily and it pays off, and then he runs into the problems that that approach brings with it? On the level of ideology, I'd say that populism and socialism have always had a very complicated, intertangled relationship, also across history. So in the late 19th century, when populism actually comes about as a word in the first time in the American case, there are already very close connections between the People's Party, the populist, and the American socialist movement. You see this also in Latin America, where the lines, the sort of firewall between populism and socialism is never as neat as you think it is. But at the same time, there are very real differences. So the central subject of populism is the people. I mean, it, it's in the name itself, um, but there isn't directly any social or I'd say even materialist content to that subject of the people because it doesn't denote a whole universe or galaxy of social forces which you have with the notion of class or the working class. So the working class almost intrinsically or immediately puts you inside an opposition between capital and labor. There's a notion of how two classes uh, interact with the market, there's a relationship with the state, there's almost a sense of history that's also incredibly important when you talk about something like a class struggle between classes. With the notion of the people, you don't have those things um, that quickly. You need a lot more content to make it work. Um, so the claim is not necessarily one about social oppositions, but it's more about political oppositions. So it's about who holds political power and not necessarily economic and social power. And your real desire is not necessarily for class struggle or to overthrow capital as a ruling force, but really to realize the promise of popular sovereignty or make the people rule. So the primary goal of populism is still democratic, essentially democratic. That makes it overlap with some of these socialist currents, but it doesn't share that sort of ulterior horizon that's very dear uh, to a lot of Marxists. So that I say is the, really the difference on the level of ideology. The, Difference on the level of ideology also has a component in terms of just how you rally a base and how you mobilize. So if you try to invoke the subject of a people, you're making a call to a group of people who not necessarily all share the same class position. So it is more cross-class. Uh, it's not just about rallying the working class or the industrial proletariat per se. There are members of the lower middle class that are uh, falling downwards. There are even parts of the upper middle class that might recognize themselves in a subject like the people. And you see this very clearly with a prototypical Latin American case of populism, such as Peron or Peronism, is that it's an incredibly chaotic uh, movement that constantly sprawls across class divides. And when Europeans study it with all their received categories from European political science, they're constantly baffled by the type of unexpected coalitions that um, form around um, the Argentinian case. So that is on the level of messaging, and you also saw this with Corbyn, for the many, not the few. You saw this even with Occupy Wall Street with the very notion of the 99%, which David Graeber initially played an important role in propagating, is that it's not particularly sophisticated to people who are trained and well-versed in Marxist class analysis. 99% is a very large category, and it doesn't necessarily have a social index that's very specific. So that is the content, but then is, the question becomes like, why did it work? Well, it's partly because people didn't recognize themselves in some of those Marxist scientific categories that strongly anymore. If you have unions and communist parties that actively educate and form people to see themselves as part of a certain class, to recognize and locate themselves within a class structure, then obviously when people 
make a rhetorical appeal to these notions, they resonate. They make more sense. People know what it is to be working class because you just work in a factory and you see other workers every day and that creates a certain class identity that's very stable. That is not at all the case, certainly for my European study, insofar as deindustrialization, loose labor markets, casualization, the rise of a new service proletariat actually make it very difficult for certain people to locate themselves within a certain class structure. That also has to do with the rise of so-called asset inequality, so the fact that debt has such, becomes such an important part of how these northern Atlantic economies function, uh, where you have people who are in very low incomes that suddenly are able to take out really exorbitant loans. And that obviously means that identification is not necessarily in those class-based lines, but it might be more around coalitions that have to do with uh, with uh, financial blocks, so to speak. So in the British case, the fact that you had a lot of post-industrial workers that uh, bought their privatized council houses from Thatcher and then took out loans with banks, that gives them a de facto interest in teaming up with uh, a so-called deflationary coalition on the right that keeps the price of their houses um, uh, high while it keeps most of their interest payments relatively low. And that means that when someone comes along and decides to speak in the name of the people and says that democracy is being violated, it's far more likely to resonate than when someone comes along with older Marxist uh, class categories which uh, had much stronger appeal, I'd say, in an economy that looked less like the one we have today. So often what happens in the cases in my book is that you're, the, the movements that you look at in, in your book, the street movement fizzles out, and so there's the transition into electoral politics. Um, and so while your book is often about failure, my book is often about the disaster of accidental success. So what happens often with these street movements is that this particular repertoire of contention, this particular type of mobilization, the apparently spontaneous, digitally coordinated, horizontally organized mass protest is much better than expected at getting people out into the streets. Um, and, and as a rule, most of the original organizers behind these street explosions did not expect them to go this way. They did not expect that many people to come out. And what happens is so many people come out that you generate properly revolutionary situations. You generate situations in which you could either extract real concessions from the state because the state is fighting for its life, or you could replace the state with a new one. Mm -hmm. And the real problem, the tragedy in, in so many of these cases is that this particular type of mobilization is incapable of dealing with the situation. Uh, uh, a a protest, especially a protest of individuals who are all coming for their own uh, reasons, cannot seize the means of power, the means of production, cannot take over the reins of power and create a new state because exactly, you know, what precisely what type of state would that be? That wouldn't necessarily imply that someone's acting as a vanguard. That's often uh, ideologically prohibited by the, the, the mass particip the participants in these mass movements. Uh, that would often mean that the uh, media, both traditional and social, that are providing these movements with positive uh, feedback loops would abandon them. And then even if you do not want to overthrow the state and create a new one, even if you are, understand that you're incapable of doing that, or, or, or that's not the opportunity that's presented to you, a mass mobilization of this particular type is also incapable of extracting concessions from an existing state, because that entails representation. And these are uh, necessarily movements that come out of the crisis of representation that do not have the ability to send somebody to the presidential palace and say, okay, if you give us A, B, and C, 
we're going to demobilize. One, who's going to decide on A, B, and C? That would be often seen as authoritarianism, if not uh, sort of a sort of Leninist deviation by many of these movements. And even if you could come up with somebody to get together and decide what to ask for, you could never promise to the states that the people back on the streets are actually going to mm. get off get off the streets if we get what we want. So this this uh, unexpected success, and it was unplanned for because it just you know I'm, I'm not faulting these movements for not planning for them. It just it never seemed like this was going to happen in the first place. But this the inability to prepare for this moment, this unexpected success, leads to a a horrifying dilemma where, well, now what do we do? We've created a power vacuum. We cannot fill it. And then often the original organizers watch in horror as somebody worse than the, uh, the, the actors they were targeting initially enter that power vacuum. Can I just add that what you're describing is almost the Leninist dual power situation where the state authority collapses without the Leninist vanguard party that can then replace one power with another. And I think that is a paradox. It's very typical in the 2010s where you have these pre-revolutionary or semi-revolutionary moment, but you don't have the institutional counterpart that can actually instantiate or force regime change in the, in the better Marxist sense almost, rather than the one we're accustomed to. And I think, once again, you also see this on the right. So this very famous clip of the January 6th riots, um, which I think are prone to some of these same spasmodic uh, dynamics that you described with your protest movements, that there's a video of two men standing in front of the Capitol as it's being stormed. I think security is already overwhelmed. One of them just points their finger at the Capitol and says, like, we can take that thing. And the other guy turns around to him and says, like, and then do what? <laughs> like, what, what are we actually supposed to do? And I think that is the Leninist dual power dilemma in its purest form, where they, they enter the capital, they're there, but then turns out that the king's head has been cut off and there's no one to replace it. Right. No, absolutely. And I mean, I don't want to get away ahead of myself, but at the end of this book, I sort of try to summarize what, what comes out of sort of over 200 interviews that I've done with people around the world that either organized this, these movements or responded to them in the state or uh, participated as sort of quote unquote regular people. And a lot of people did come back, if not entirely to full Leninism, to something closer to a Leninist conception of revolutionary practice. Maybe a better way to put it is that uh, a big theme that comes out of my interviews is sort of an anti-anti-Leninism. You cannot throw out everything. Mm, yeah, you cannot throw out everything. <laughs> everything that the Bolsheviks did, uh, because a lot of it works. Um, yeah. So Leninism runs absolutely, uh, essentially through, through the book and this sort of this, this complete rejection of Leninism, especially in the, uh, the United States in the second half of the 20th century. And then really, especially with the alter globalization movement. And then at the end of the 2010s, people moving closer to the Leninist conception of revolutionary practice in, in many, many, in many, many countries. Um, and, and yes, I mean, one of the groups, the main group that is the sort of, you know, my book is structured as narrative history. So the sort of main protagonist in my book, it's a group called the Movimento Passi Livre in Brazil. Uh, they were a group that came out of indie media. They came out of the alter globalization movement. They were uh, left anarchists, leftist and anarchists, uh, often like punks. Um, and they were dedicated to the complete commodification of public transportation in Brazil. And they were tightly knit and disciplined and well-organized as a group themselves, but they were they were dogmatically committed to horizontalism as a guiding ideology. And the reason I mentioned them on time is, is what you said is exactly what came up in, in my interviews with one of the main, uh, main organizers, 
is that they planned in 2013, they planned painstakingly every single thing that they would do that would cause the popular revolt that would get Mayor Fernando, Fernando Haddad to, uh, to reduce, to reverse the price increase on the bus fare. They planned every single movement every single minute down to the victory. But the thing <laughs> is, the victory came via a huge popular revolt, much longer, larger than they'd ever expected. And Lucas, uh, one of the organizers, told me that we planned for every single moment up to the victory, but for the day after, we had planned absolutely nothing. Mm. Wow. And so, I mean, I mean, just to just to follow up there, he said, you know, they they planned on creating a popular revolt. They always bet on. This cycle of contention, police repression, not that they wanted police repression, but they knew that if they got, if they cause enough trouble in the streets, they're, they're, they could set off the spark to cause a popular revolt. Another thing he told me is that, you know, we wanted to create a popular revolt. We wanted to lose control over the streets, but we lost control to a greater extent than we ever, than we ever expected. The re popular revolt got much, much bigger than we ever expected. And that did not go the way that we hoped, you know, with, with literally millions of people entering the streets, you got a, a, eventually... Uh, the introduction of far-right elements on, into the street movement. And I, I recount this in the book because I witnessed that I was there at, over the, 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 the evolution of this movement. Uh, you know, just two weeks after Trotskyist and left parties were the most important, uh, some of the most important participants in the street movement, they were violently expelled from the streets by the far-right. Mm. Um, because if you invite everyone into the streets, I mean, there's a Turkish soci sociologist, Zeynep Tufek, she has a good line in her book. You know, there's that old uh, uh, 20th century slogan about like, you know, kind of like the, the hippie slogan, what happens if you have a war and no one shows up? Well, she reformulates that to uh, what, what happens if you have a protest and everyone shows up? <laughs> if literally 100% of the people in the country are on the streets, then you just get the reproduction of the society that you already have, which is what Lenin, which is what precisely what Lenin says is going to happen in an entirely spontaneous uh, uprising. I, I personally don't think that spontane spontaneity actually makes sense as a concept, but I'm stealing that from Rodrigo Nunes and I don't want to go down that, that path, but um, that's what happens in Brazil at least. Seven out of the 10 movements analyzed in If We Burn were deemed outright failures, if not worse than failures. And all the movements in the populist moment either didn't come to power or failed when they came to power. Why were all these movements failures? In, in my case, I would be careful to say they're all complete failures. I do think, for example, Podemos's record in government is not unambiguously good, but at least a lot better than whatever. If you look at the Corbynist case in Britain, uh, Spain had impressively low inflation figures. They were actually able to push through some social measures. And if you look at, for example, the results of Vox in the latest elections, it's very clear that some of this governmental participation on behalf of left populists uh, did pay off. Um, at the same time, I think most of their failure also in government has to do with the relative weakness of the civil society that left populism uh, built up. So as Vincent already intimated, you can get 100% of the people in the street, you can have um, complete control of the digital media space, so to speak, or not control, because that doesn't exist in a space that's controlled by oligarchs, but rather that you occupy a large part of the discursive space that's available there and still not be able to force capital's hand when you get to the level of the state. Uh, and that is exactly because since you don't have that many direct social contact, uh, um, or rather social content to your coalition, so a lot of people are in the streets and are protesting, but it's not as if you know very clearly what members of your party are stationed in which factory at which they could maybe call a strike that actually pulls um, 
part of Greek capital in Sarita's case to its knees, then it would be very hard to force concessions. Um, so that's the first part, precisely because you have such a socially indeterminate and also weak coalition, the moment you have to move from politics to actual questions of power, or rather from mobilization to policy, um, it becomes extremely difficult because you've never trained yourself for that type of government or of policy. And then there's an international element, which I already hinted at with Iglesias, is that the type of capitalism we have today, and you have a miniature of that in the Eurozone, really relies on the veto power of loads of other states for you to even implement the types of left-wing programs that parts of your coalition might want. So, for example, if you don't have a left populist upsurge in Germany, which is the heart of power in the Eurozone, while you're winning elections in Greece, and you have a meeting of the Eurogroup in which all the finance ministers are meeting, and the representative of Germany is just firmly, firmly on the right, it's become it's going to become intensely difficult for you to actually stop the austerity program. But there was a hope maybe in Greece that, for example, there'd be a so-called southern or Mediterranean bloc between France, Spain, Italy, and then Greece against the austerian countries in the north. But that never really materialized because left populists weren't able to be in power synchronously with the left populist um, in Greece at the time. So once again, there's a national problem where what is the counterweight to capital you've actually built? And if it's just people that show up because they recognize themselves in a general sense of dissatisfaction, that's simply not enough. You need people who have their hands on the levers of social power. And at the same time, you need to coordinate internationally. Once again, that was the Leninist wager before the First World War and during the First World War is that you have a seizure of power of the proletariat in each national case, and then you can actually coordinate the international revolution. But I think if we compare it to the 2010s, were worlds removed from that option. That doesn't mean it was a mistake. I think it just gives us a good sense of how difficult and how hard the task is um, that we're facing. Yeah, and I think I, I think I addressed a lot of that question with my previous comment. The, I mean, really the question of what went wrong, what happened, um, is in the story itself, which is why I structure my book as a, as a history uh, rather than like an argument, it, like if you, if you want to understand what happened in the 10, 10 countries uh, or 12 countries that I look at closely, I think you really have to look at it historically and chronologically because imposing a sort of a set of explanations with, from from 2023, uh, I think does not fail, fails to capture the really intense complexity of these these explosions. And I think that a lot of the a lot of the interviews that I that I conducted and um, lead to, I think, the conclusion that I arrive at at the book, that these are so intensely complex in their nature that they often become fundamentally illegible. The only way to really look at them is to go uh, day by day, if not minute by minute. Uh, you can't really summarize what the, what the movement believes because you have to ask literally every single person what they believe and why they're there, and that might even change from morning to night. So uh, the fundamental illegibility is a, is, is a problem that People like me in the foreign media were definitely uh, unprepared to deal with. We did not have the intellectual or material resources uh, to tackle that. So the answer of what went wrong is really in the story. And I tried it as much as possible just to lay that out in order as it unfolded. But the, you know, but the, the, the broad answer as to what, how things could get worse is the one I just outlined, the creation of a power, a power vacuum that is occupied by just the, the, the B team, the, the people that were waiting in the wings rather than you yourself. Um, 
and then uh, the set of lessons that comes out from the 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 interviews is to get as organized as you can before the explosion comes. Don't wait for history with a capital H to come knocking to try to get a movement together because in that moment, you're not going to have time to do so. As a rule, it was the movements that were most organized uh, were best at proper coordinated and collective action beforehand that ended up winning. And that could be the far right in Ukraine, or it could be groups that did share some of the original goals of the, the movement. But, uh, that is that is the attempt at a lesson that that that, that often came out of the, the the work. What can we take away from the 2010s? Were there any successes? I I want to okay. So I'll start and then I'll leave it to Vincent, who I think has more interesting things to say about this. I want to caution against overly pessimistic or even doomerist takes on it. So in many ways, it's been a promising and interesting decade. Um, there's also been a lot of failures. But it, the comparison I often make is that at least we have a sense of how steep the climb is going to be. So there are tendencies to just write off left populism as a complete failure. Loads of people have sunk all kinds of political funds into it. And now that's been spoiled. You can clearly see the sense of demoralization, for example, in the British case where they say, oh, a once in a lifetime opportunity to actually rebuild the British left was wasted on a pop-up populism that didn't actually survive one electoral cycle. But I think we now have a better cartography of where power lies in society than we did 10 years ago. I think merit people are better materialists because they have a sense of what power, how it's actually distributed in society and how steep the climb is going to be. And so I think people started climbing a mountain once again and they thought they could just run up it and um, do the whole climb in one day. And now we have a sense maybe that the top of the mountain is much, much higher and it will take us much longer to even uh, get closer um, to where we're headed. And I think a valuable lesson from the 2010s, even if it failed, is that it gives you a sense of, one, what the limits are of that left populist approach. So even if it's attractive, um, I think its deficiencies have really revealed itself, so we should reflect on that. And secondly, we now know what the task ahead is and that it's going to require a lot more patience. Um, as Bukharin said, it's going to be at snail's pace and it's not going to be through two or three posts that, I don't know, will get us to utopia tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I agree with that entirely. It's, it's basically the same conclusion that I think my work leads me to. Because the identification of a long and steep climb is no problem whatsoever. That's fantastic. Okay. I mean, yeah. the future lasts a long time. And if you know how to build a better future, you can get together with people that, that agree with you and you can do it. Um, I think that often a very big problem in the 2010s, and I think this is, this is sort of a hangover from the end of history and from indeed uh, sort of a a mystical teleological strain of thought that existed, especially in the North Atlantic, is we weren't even we weren't even trying to do a quick climb. We were just waiting for history with a capital H to deliver us with the perfect riot, which would somehow and, and that, that's the and then that's the eschaton, right? Like, okay, yeah. if if the if the riot happens in the perfect way in the right place at the right time, well, then that's the revolution. Then we're done. You don't have to rebuild anything. Just wait for the perfect right to come along. And the perfect right's not going to come along. Um, not that we need to throw out uh, uh, mass street actions as, as part of the repertoire for building the future, but identifying power structures, getting together with people that want to change them in the same way as you, 
identifying the part of the mountain that you want to climb and then starting to do that in concert with the other fellow human beings. There's nothing depressing that about that at all. For me, that's one of the most, that's the best way, the way, one of the best ways you could ever think to spend life on this planet is to identify the hard work that needs to be done and do it with your fellow human beings. So, so I, uh, if we can, if we have identified a steep and long climb that we need to embark upon, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. That's that that's entirely an optimistic uh, uh, outlook, as far as I'm concerned. And can I, can I just add? There's a certain sensibility that is mainly born online that militates against this long-termism and this patience, because there is a quick fix mentality or an intrinsic short-termism to the online media cycle or just how digital platforms function. So that gives you the sense that you can just race or sprint up the mountain and get it done in one day because it is encouraged by how these media are structured. That's also their commercial model is that they rely on reducing your concentration span so that you make money. While as you say, the steep and long climb up the mountain, the slow and hard drilling of boards as Weber once called it, uh, might just be the essence of politics, and the internet is not particularly good at encouraging encouraging us, sorry, to see that essence. No, I agree entirely, and this is why the particular configuration of social media is, I think, something we should not accept. Uh, social media has only been around for ten years. Maybe it's going to be around for another fifty thousand years. I don't think we have to accept yeah. the particular formulation created by six oligarchs in my home state of California, and, and just accept that as natural, as if it was handed down by God. We can and should seize control over social media. We can create social media which does not uh, uh, scramble our brains to think only about the next post, the next hit, the next thing that will get us retweets. Um, and I think that you know, again, and that's another long climb. Like this is another thing that 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 history. You know, you can't identify a deep structural force in society that's going to get that done for you, right? You can't point to a an inherent tendency in the global economy to for the redemocratization of media. But we still need yeah. to do it. We still yeah. need to get together and figure out a way that we can take over media again. And is that going to be maybe very hard or are we maybe going to fail? Uh, are we going to actually have to do it ourselves rather than waiting for the market or some mystical historical force to do it for us? Yes, I think so. But it still needs to be done. I don't know. I think there will be a couple good posts in the future that will get us there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we can reconstruct the... the uh, the built digital environment so that truly good posts are the ones that that that, that just one in. more just one more post bro, bro <laughs> this 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 post is different it's <laughs> one more do you have any questions for each other yeah because anton one thing that struck me in your in your book and this is this is a, a a through line that um is much more essential to my book because my book is really about the intellectual history, among many other things, about the intellectual history of horizontalism as a mm -hmm. as a explicit practice, not just a, a you know not just concrete reality, just but the idea that horizontalism should be privileged. But the line that I find, and this comes up in in the literature, and I, you, I think you quote Paulo Gerbao, though I spoke to him a little bit for this book. The one thing that was struck me in your book is that you didn't make this um, explicit. What I found historically, and, and indeed in the movements that I look look at is that a commitment to putative horizontalism, uh, the apparent structurelessness of, of a mass movement often leads to precisely the type of hyper leader situation that you describe. I find that there's a real like ironic, uh, there, there's, there's a ironically incredibly common flip from a movement which has absolutely no leaders whatsoever 
to which is one which is dominated by a leader very quickly, which has absolutely no, which is not in any way accountable to the movement. Uh, the movement, if the movement has not selected the leader through an intentional process of selection, the movement has no way to recall, uh, in, give input to uh, a leader, which in many ways does not actually represent the movement in, in the first place. And I think this is all related to the crisis of representation. I just wanted to, I was just curious if Anton agreed that that there is that sort of strange link between apparent structurelessness, uh, intentional horizontalism, and this dynamic of hyperleaders that, that you described in your book. Yeah, I think there's a lazy answer to that, which just refers to Michel's law of oligarchy, where you say that any organizational venture has an intrinsic tendency to form itself into a vertical hole where leaders just take control because that's necessary. And I also don't think that answer is specific enough about what happened in the 2010s, because I think Paolo Gerbaudo's um, idea is also very much, as you say, that horizontalism tends to invite hyper-leadership. So the fetish with horizontality and the fact that you don't actually want to delegate, you don't want to be represented, no one can speak for you, immediately creates a situation in which someone can step in and then uh, claim the mantle of the movement that is supposedly leaders before. So there is a tyranny of structurelessness insofar as the literal sense. Structuralness invites tyranny because in the society we live, uh, representation, abstraction, and delegation is an inevitable fact of social life. It happens on every level already. There is no organization or no social institution that doesn't function without it. So any movement that arises in that society will be subject to the same laws insofar as we don't live in ancient Athens and we can have direct democracies. It's just almost in a numerical sense that's impossible in our societies. And if you have such a large number of people or group of people together, that means that these mechanisms of delegation and representation, which are already implicit in our society, will just become explicit. And if you don't formalize them, if you don't have procedures or rules around them, then it invites, I wouldn't say authoritarian, but at least sort of strongly vertical ways of uh, representing someone. And the whole trick of organization also in a Lenin sense is to make sure that the way that is formalized before keeps you from the types of hyper-leadership and one man rule that then negate the entire promise of what the movement had instantaneously. And I would say, yes, that the proponents of structurallessness and then the proponents of tyranny or the horizontalists and the hyperleaders are in some way uh, enemies, but also best friends in that the way that these protest movements play out is that they never really tend to invite the other. It's almost a structural necessity. Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. And I think that the, the, the question of numbers is, is absolutely essential. You know, setting aside sort of anarcho-privativism, a society as big and as complex as our own yes. will entail representation and delega delegation. So you can decide how to do that. Yeah, You can get together and create democratic ways of selecting the representatives and de delegating tasks. Or you can, often in the case in the 2010s, allow social media to select leaders or allow CNN to decide who speaks for a movement. Or often, you know, the more, the more uh, tragic case, the most ruthless and violent actor in society will just kill their enemies and seize power. So, mm -hmm. so yes, I, I, I agree entirely. I was just struck by the way that that sort of lurks below the surface of your entire book in which, in, yeah. while, while it's very central to my book, perhaps just because I lived in Brazil and this Movimento Passe Libre was explicitly horizontalist and a lot of them now say that they were dogmatically so. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad to see how the conclusions of the books converge 
because it would have been quite uncomfortable. I have this recently where I was just explaining the book to some people and they really disagreed extremely violently on my pessimistic evaluation of some of these movements, not just the populist ones, but also the protest cycle as a whole. Um, but it's very nice to see that we actually did agree on most of it. Well, I don't think it's pessimistic. I mean, like, if, if you can't really deny, certainly in the cases that I'm looking at, you can't deny the facts, right? I mean, if you're talking to an Egyptian or a Bahraini or a Brazilian or a, 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 a Yemeni, you can't hide. You can't. You can't come up with a spin as to what happened. Yes. You can't course, say that. Yeah. You can't say that what happened was good between 2010 and 2020. Mm. What you can do is you can say, and this is indeed the reason that hundreds of people sat down with me to to help me write this book. What you can do is say is that this was only one decade. We have a lot of time to build something better, so we can get together and learn from what went wrong, and just fix this mix match. This fight, fix this mismatch that we had in the 2010s and come together in a way which productively learns from, from, from the recent past. So I don't think there's anything pessimistic about uh, recognizing that things haven't worked out. You know, again, it's magical thinking to think that everything would work out in the first 10 years. You know, social media is brand new. The first 10 years of the response to the implosion of the neoliberal global order, which arguably started in 2008, the idea that this was all supposed to happen with like, yeah, just one, po like, you know, one weird trick, you know, just like the perfect post, the perfect riot, you know, I could see why some people believed that that might be possible. I probably did to some extent too, but with the, with the privilege of uh, retrospection, and a little bit more age maturity, uh, there's no reason that there's no reason that it needed to, we have plenty of time to build a new world. Like I said, it's going to, they're, they're, the internet's going to be around for a long time, and so is the global economy, unless we destroy the planet. So hopefully, uh, there's nothing pessimistic about learning from errors. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think if you look at the European cases where Syriza is currently being run by a former Goldman Sachs banker, um, there are certain indisputable facts which do force you to face reality in that something hasn't worked. But that's also productive. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a learning curve that's steep, but that's still a learning curve. Thanks both for joining us. Thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, thank you, Anton and, and, and Colby and Anthony. Anton's book, co-written with Artur Borriello, The Populist Moment, is available now. And Vincent's book, If We Burn, is also available now. Mm -hmm.